Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. As the month of May draws to a close, so does the life of Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts. So what's going to happen to the nuclear waste that's being stored on site? Plymouth, America's hometown, will be a nuclear waste dump. No one knows what to do with this waste. No one. We'll look toward the future and take you through the history of the plant. One marvels. How could that small little building across the bay really occupy waking hours of over 30 years of my life? This May also saw federal border patrol stops in both New Hampshire and Vermont. Good morning. How are you guys? So I'm with the U.S. Border Patrol. We're doing immigration checks on all the passengers today. Border officials say these stops help combat terrorism, drugs, and illegal immigration, but they have civil rights advocates concerned. Plus, one of New England's most scenic drives has an evocative name, But should it really be called the Mohawk Trail? What's not accurate is there's just a whole group of people missing from those histories. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. Police departments around the country have started issuing body cameras to their officers in recent years as a way to bring accountability and transparency to law enforcement. In some parts of our region, the practice has been widely adopted. In Vermont, for instance, 31 agencies now have body cameras. But some of the bigger cities have been slower to start using the cameras, which are meant to record any interactions with the public. Hartford, Connecticut and Portland, Maine have just started pilot programs, and both Boston and Worcester started training officers this month. But just having the cameras doesn't always mean they'll be used properly. We have to look out for a, a, like a red Honda Civic. The body camera video released showed the moment Hamden police officer Devin Eaton pulled up to a red car matching the description of one reported in an alleged armed robbery and opened fire. In that April case in New Haven, Connecticut, neither officer involved actually turned on his body camera before the shots were fired. The footage was only captured by a feature that records the moments just before the camera was engaged. Now, that shooting injured a woman. Neither she nor the driver were charged with any crime. In Burlington, Vermont, recently released body cam footage showed police allegedly using excessive force against two black men. The video sparked public outcry and calls for police reform. But the largest police force in Vermont, the state police, doesn't outfit all their troopers with the devices. VPR's Liam Elder Connors has our story. In September 2018, Burlington Police Sergeant Jason Bellavance responded to a call about an altercation at a bar downtown. Bellavance's body camera footage shows him walking up to two men arguing on the street, Jeremy Melly and the bartender. Without announcing himself, Bellavance shoves Melly, who's black. Melly falls back and his head slams into a brick wall. This incident, along with another similar one, are the subject of two federal lawsuits. The cases sparked protest and calls for reforming police use of force policy. Burlington City Council and the mayor say they're going to take up the issue. While everyone might have a different take on the incidents, most people agree that having the body camera footage is important. Attorney Evan Chadwick filed the lawsuits against Burlington police. 
He says the footage helps confirm the allegations. It gives you extra confidence in what your witnesses are saying are true. And in our case, uh, it very much did. And Burlington Police Chief Brandon Del Pozo says body camera footage adds important context to internal reviews. When an officer knows he's on film and he walks up to someone and, and, and shoves them, um, you know, we're left to wonder when we consider our discipline, what, uh, what was the motivation? What was the intent? What is the expected outcome of shoving? Why was he doing it? And what could he have done otherwise? Several days after the Burlington videos were published, in Hartford, Vermont, state police shot a man on a domestic violence call. In a press release, state police say James Luce was walking in the road with a shotgun. When a trooper told him to drop the gun, Luce didn't. The trooper fired his shotgun, grazing Luce and causing minor injuries. State police are currently investigating the shooting, but there won't be video from the perspective of the trooper that shot Luce. That's because most state troopers don't have body cameras. I would have envisioned that we would have had body cameras by now. That's Captain Gary Scott of the Vermont State Police. We want them. The public wants them. It's, uh, so that part is uh, frustrating. And it comes down to uh, but doing it the right way. So what's held up the agency's plan to outfit all its troopers with body cameras? Scott says it comes down to money, especially the annual cost for storing the footage. At the low end, he estimates it would cost about $260,000 a year. But those could go up and down depending upon a lot of things. Um, So figuring out what that looks like with a a state-funded cloud-based system or a private vendor, those those are two different costs. The agency's proposed budget this year is a little over $69 million. Vermont State Police aren't alone in saying they struggle with the cost of body cameras. In January, the Washington Post reported that many small police agencies are getting rid of cameras due to costs. Wyndham Representative Nadar Hashim is a former state trooper. He thinks body cameras might not be worth the investment, since all state police cruisers have dash cameras. Video and audio from the cruiser you know, accomplishes the task that both the officers want and also um, that the public wants in terms of accountability. Jay Diaz, a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union of Vermont, says body cameras can be useful. And we support them as long as these policies are put in place where we center the focus around the interests of the public, not law enforcement. They need to be a tool for public accountability and transparency in law enforcement operations. Diaz says cameras should stay on for the duration of an incident and departments should not allow officers to review footage before making statements. The state's top law enforcement official, Attorney General T.J. Donovan, is optimistic that state police will get body cameras. He says it's now best practice in law enforcement. It's good for the cop, it's good for the citizen, um, and it allows prosecutors to, uh, to really see firsthand what occurred in order to make a determination uh, that justice uh, would require. State police do have some money for body cameras. A few years ago, the agency got nearly $2 million in state and federal money. The funds were used to update cruiser cameras and work on the video storage issue. But in January, state police wanted to use the leftover cash, about a half million dollars, to get new patrol rifles. 
Captain Scott of the state police says there's been an increase in shootings and concerns over trooper safety. Now we saw this need of increased of shootings. Uh, we wanted to make sure our members had the best equipment possible, especially when it comes to firearms. So the colonel made an ask of the legislator with the money that was sitting there. To, could we go down this path and look at this as, as an option? I mean, because I might argue that more shootings would be an indication that you really want the body cameras. Yeah, we want them. <laughs> I mean, we've wanted them all along. Ultimately, lawmakers did not let the agency shift the funds. Scott says state police will keep working with the legislature to try to get funding for body cameras. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liam Elder Connors. You can go to our website, nexttonewengland.org, for a story about how body cams work. Over Memorial Day weekend, U.S. Customs and Border Protection set up a checkpoint in the northern New Hampshire town of Columbia. That's about 25 miles from the border. But over the last few years, CBP has set up checkpoints much further south. In fact, as we've reported, federal agents are allowed to set up immigration checkpoints within 100 miles of any U.S. border. That's a zone that includes almost all of New England. Now, for the first time in 10 years at the start of May, a stop was set up in Vermont. John Dillon from VPR joins us now to talk about what happened there. John, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, John. So what do we know about this recent CBP stop in Vermont? Well, as you noted, they haven't been done in a long time, about a decade, and it didn't last very long. It was just a few hours on a Saturday morning on U.S. Route 2, which isn't the interstate, but it is a a north-south highway that comes down through the Champlain Islands. And they set this up on a causeway that crosses part of Lake Champlain. They didn't arrest anybody, but they did ask a bunch of people for their citizenship status. And, you know, they don't say what they're looking for, but what they did do is they gave us a little bit of advance notice that they would be resuming this activity by telling Vermont's congressional delegation a couple of months ago that they'd start up again. But since Border Patrol likes to make it a surprise, they obviously didn't say where or when they would resume. So they did resume at the beginning of the month. Why now? The timing's not really clear that, you know, the Trump administration, as we know, has generally been cracking down on migrants and undocumented people trying to get into this country, uh, especially on the southern border. So I think this is part of that overall effort. And there's a lot of dairy farms in, in that part of the state, in Grand Isle County and nearby Franklin County. And those farms employ a lot of uh, mainly undocumented Mexican migrant farm workers. So that could have been who they were looking for at, at this stop. For people who've not been caught up in one of these stops in the past, maybe you don't know exactly what they look like. What exactly happens whenever uh, Border Patrol stops traffic in one of these one of these places? Pretty simple. I mean, they they set up a roadblock with police vehicles. I've been pulled over when they had them 10 years ago down on Interstate 91, um, almost in the central part of Vermont. And they pull you over and they just say, um, what country are you from? And we we got a little bit of sound of this because freelance reporter Lauren Manilon got an early morning tip on this recent one that this stop was going down. So he rushed over there and, and got this tape. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. So Good. I'm with the U.S. Border Patrol. We're doing immigration checks on all the passengers today. Of what country are you citizen, sir? USA. Yourself, ma'am? USA. Okay, have a good day. Drive safe. Wow, so just a few simple questions. Uh, is this pretty typical of how these stops always sound? Yes, unless they don't believe you, in which case they ask for ID or or, um, or some sort of papers to prove uh, that you are in the country legally. 
And civil liberties advocates say if you don't look like a white Vermonter or, or white American, there's potentially some profile going on and you'll be more likely to be asked for your papers proving your legal residence. So it's typical, but they also do ask more questions if they don't accept your answers. As we heard, they're basically asking a question that you could answer any way you wanted to, but you you rely on them to believe you and not. And as you said, John, a large percentage of the population of Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, is white. And so anybody who does not fit that particular profile might stand out to these border agents. Exactly. And and we've heard anecdotally that's exactly who they pick out on these stops. So what are the agents looking for, aside from maybe someone who doesn't have the proper documentation? Well, they say it's a pretty broad net they're casting. It, you know, they, they could be looking for drugs, potential terrorists, and, of course, the overarching mission of the Border Patrol, which is to look for people who have entered the country without going through a checkpoint or, or illegally. And uh, Lauren Madelon asked Bradley Curtis, the division director of the Swanton sector for the Border Patrol, exactly why they were doing this. Of that 295 miles of border, which is part of the 4,000-mile-long U.S.-Canada border, we routinely uh, apprehend more than 50% of the cross-border traffic every year. So we are concentrated, again, on all threats. Could it be terrorism, uh, terrorist components, uh, illegal aliens? So, so it could be all of those things. We've certainly heard anecdotally that periodically they make drug busts. And uh, a lot of people that we've talked to in New Hampshire say they're not too worried about checkpoints like these if they actually do take opioids off the street. And a lot of the Asians say these stops are, are pretty useful. What What are some other concerns, though, about these checkpoints, John? The big one is just overreach of federal law enforcement because these are obtrusive roadblocks. They can be conducted, as you noted, up to 100 miles from the border. That's roughly two-thirds of the U.S. population lives within that zone. And so it's 200 million people all potentially subject to these random show-me-you're-an-American type of stops. So it, it's kind of sort of goes against the grain of a lot of people. And then Secondly, the the ACLU has huge civil liberties concerns as well because the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution is supposed to protect people from random searches and seizures without warrants. And the, the Vermont ACLU people I've talked to say these stops are searches and seizures and do, they believe, violate the Fourth Amendment. And, and I know that some, some folks in your congressional delegation are, are concerned about all of these issues, the civil liberties concerns, but also about just the scope of this, the fact that Customs and Border Protection is able to operate pretty much anywhere they want in our entire region. That's right. And Vermont's congressional delegation has introduced legislation to limit this zone to 25 miles of the border. And here's Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy talking about why he thinks that's a good idea. I don't want to live in a country where people can come up and flash a badge and say, show me your papers. I've seen that happen in iron, the old Iron Curtain countries and others. I don't want to see it here. Hmm. Now, now you've been reporting, John, on another issue related to the border, and, and it concerns Border Patrol agents from the northern border, the one that we're talking about, that are being moved actually to the southern border because of all the problems with migration there. What's happening there? So the administration has moved 700 or so agents from the northern border to guard the southern border because 
that's been, as we know from hearing the news for the last year or so, uh, the focus of so much enforcement and so much concern from the administration. Um, they, I've, I've asked that there was an event up at the Vermont border a few weeks ago. I asked how many were moved from our sector, the Swanton sector, which covers part of New, northern New York, Vermont, and New Hampshire. They wouldn't give an exact number, but there are concerns about how that will affect cross-border traffic and, and business. Well, that's interesting, John, because on one hand, fewer Border Patrol agents who are uh, patrolling here on the northern border might mean fewer of these checkpoints over the course of the next couple months, but it also maybe really slow things down. If you're trying to head up for business in, in Montreal or, or head down from Canada, you might be stuck in long lines. How's it going to affect uh, business that way? Well, they're worried about it. I mean, don't forget that the border is just this major commerce zone for business, trucks, et cetera, from Canada to Vermont to northern New York to New Hampshire. It's huge. There's, especially in northern New York, there's great concern because that part of the country lies so much on cross-border traffic. The local chamber of commerce over there has complained, and a congressional delegation from the six northeastern states have also con- expressed concern about the potential staffing shortfall and and then lengthy delays that could just slow down business. Uh, John Dillon has been covering the border issues for us from Vermont Public Radio and the New England News Collaborative. John, as always, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, John. On the southern border, we've been hearing stories about thousands of migrants legally seeking asylum being held for long periods of time as they await a ruling on their case. NHPR's Todd Bookman brings us the story of a 28-year-old Somali man whose immigration story started on the border of Mexico and California and brought him all the way to the Stratford County Jail in Dover, New Hampshire. Earlier this month, the man was released after more than two and a half years in detention. Muhammad Ahmed Ali is wearing a white dress shirt that's at least two sizes too big. He borrowed it from his lawyers. All of the guy's worldly possessions are in a small mesh laundry bag on the floor. A plastic cup and some tea bags spill out. Ahmed Ali has been on the move constantly during the past five years. It began in Somalia in 2014. Armed militants had already killed his father. The terrorist group al-Shabaab was threatening his mother. They tell her, don't work again. If you work, we're going to kill you. His family fled to a refugee camp in Kenya. But Mohammed wanted to come to the United States. So he started on a months-long journey. From, from Kenya to Turkey, Turkey to Colombia. In South America, he hooked up with a group of about 25 other African and Haitian migrants. They had different backgrounds, different reasons for leaving than the current flood of South American migrants. But the path they took was similar. From Colombia to Panama, people walking five days, six days, mountain, jungle, without nothing. Once they got to Panama, they traveled mostly by bus through Central America. And on October 10, 2016, Ahmed Ali arrived at the southern border near San Diego. He turned himself in, seeking asylum. He said he feared for his life in Somalia. Immigration authorities transferred Ahmed Ali to Boston. After a few months there, a judge denied his asylum request. ICE transferred him to Louisiana to await deportation, but it kept getting delayed. And then he kept getting shuttled back and forth between holding facilities in Louisiana and Alabama. During this period, Ahmed Ali alleges that he saw and suffered repeated verbal abuse. Sometimes the guards punished him by blasting the air conditioning. Cold, cold air, a lot of cold air. You just, you know, you don't have no blanket, no cold nothing. Air. Yeah. Then one morning, about five o'clock in the morning, it was time for his deportation. 
92 Somalis are loaded aboard a chartered plane. Two women and 90 men. It was a nine-hour flight to the first stop, Senegal, in western Africa, what was supposed to be a brief layover. But the plane just sat there. Hours go by. The detainees are stuck in their seats. Their wrists and feet are shackled. So you sit like this, you cannot move. Ahmed Ali says they were on that runway for 23 hours. The detainees were urinating in plastic bottles after the bathrooms overflowed. The whole time, no explanation for what was happening. It was uh, horrible. It was a bad situation for real. But the detainees remained shackled and bound on the runway for 23 hours. They alleged they were subjected to inhumane and deplorable conditions. The botched deportation flight made international headlines. It was later the subject of a lawsuit. In a statement, ICE said that the delay was caused by a lack of available flight crew. Whatever the reason, the plane turned around. It took off for Miami. They said, uh, we are going back to USA. We cannot continue our trip. So they say, wow, why, what, what? It was like everybody's shock, you know. It was like shock, you know. He was still in custody, but the news reports led to a wave of support from immigration attorneys. He soon had a lawyer who helped reopen his asylum case. But that didn't stop Ahmed Ali's frequent transfers within the web of American detention facilities. From Miami, he was sent to Georgia. Georgia was like two weeks. Then then Louisiana again, Alabama again, Louisiana a fourth time, and finally, last month, to Dover, New Hampshire. Gilles Bissonnette, a lawyer with the ACLU of New Hampshire, says the constant relocation complicates asylum requests. They go from detention facility to detention facility, um, and it's how difficult that makes it to, to actually invoke your rights as a detainee to try to stay in the United States. Once he was in Dover, the ACLU of New Hampshire filed a challenge to Ahmed Ali's detention. It argued that he doesn't have a criminal record and should be released pending a new asylum hearing. The government didn't challenge the suit. And so Sanyop Kim, another lawyer with the ACLU, went to pick him up at the jail. Um, I told him first, uh, welcome to the United States, because it was the first day he was actually out from government custody. And then second thing that I really wanted, to, not as a lawyer, but as just human, you know, human, human being, I really wanted, you know, allow him talking to his mother. Are you, she was, you know, well, first time she was, are you still alive? <laughs> so I said, yes, I'm still alive, I'm good. So I'm doing so. So she was like so happy, really so happy. She, she told me, that's, that's what she told me. Ahmed Ali's family is still in a Kenyan refugee camp. He's staying in the greater New Hampshire area for now. It isn't clear when, but at some point, he'll have another asylum hearing. This time, with a full legal team behind him. So excited. I'm feeling so grateful, really. Gilles Bissonnette with the ACLU says Ahmed Ali's two-and-a-half-year-long case is an outlier, a complete denial of his due process rights. But he says the case is still representative of something larger. All of the stories that we're reading nationally about immigration and immigration enforcement, they're happening right here under our noses in the state of New Hampshire. We have a detention facility, and in that detention facility are scores of individuals who um, are having their rights impacted by policies that are going on uh, in Washington, D.C. ICE officials didn't respond to a request for comment. As the interview ends, Ahmed Ali, with nothing more than a laundry bag, stands up and walks outside. He and Bissonnette are walking to the cell phone store so we can get his own phone to keep in touch with his mom. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. Coming up, how the Mohawk Trail got its name. But first, a look at the history of the Pilgrim nuclear plant. It's next. 
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. The end of May also means the end of the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts. But as the plant shuts down, what will it mean for the spent fuel that's on site or for the other cleanup efforts there? Barbara Moran is with us now. She's senior editor of WBUR's environmental vertical, Earthwhile. Barbara, welcome back to the show. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad to be here. So most of us don't get a chance to visit a nuclear power plant, but you got a chance to visit the Pilgrim site as part of your reporting. What was it like? Uh, It was actually pretty cool. It was uh, kind of a blast from the past. You know, the plant was uh, built in the 60s, and there's a lot of still analog dials and buttons and things like that there. So it was kind of cool to be there, especially after reporting on the plant for so long, to actually be in there and see it. We keep hearing is this word decommissioning, which is what's always said whenever a nuclear power plant is is shutting down. But maybe you can explain what goes into decommissioning a plant. Yeah. So decommissioning is basically a couple steps. First, you deal with all the radioactive spent fuel and put it into storage. Then you tear down the plant and then you clean up the site until uh, you can release it for what they call unrestricted release. And that means that you could build, you know, stores on it or apartment buildings or a playground or, or whatever. And that's the whole decommissioning process. So they're really getting ready for this to be something after Pilgrim there. That's what they hope. All right. So we've talked a lot about the spent fuel problems that nuclear power plants have because the the spent fuel has got to go somewhere. What exactly happens to that waste during this decommissioning process? Well, on Friday, they will shut down the reactor for the last time, and then they'll take about two weeks to take all of the fuel out of the reactor, and they put it into this pool nearby called the spent fuel pool, and it's still really hot and uh, radioactive, so it needs to sit there for a couple years to cool off. Um, After that, they will bring in these big metal cans into the pool, put the fuel in there, and then take those cans and put them in even bigger cans, these huge steel and concrete dry casks. They'll put those out outside and they'll sit there kind of forever. They'll sit there forever, basically just looking like these these tombs with the spent fuel in it, yeah. because we're not sure where it's going to go. Are, are residents there concerned about this fuel staying on site? Oh, yeah. That is pretty much one of their biggest concerns is that the fuel is going to be there forever. Um, this is a local activist, Diane Turco from Cape Downwinders. This is what she has to say about it. Plymouth, America's hometown, will be a nuclear waste dump. No one knows what to do with this waste. No one. So I think we need to prepare that it's going to be in Plymouth for a long time. It might be in place for at least 300 years. Yeah, so that's the problem. You know, the federal government was supposed to build a national repository for nuclear waste, but that has never happened. So right now there's nowhere else for it to go. Now, when we've talked to nuclear scientists about this issue in the past, they invariably say to us the same thing. Look, casks like this are meant to last for 300 years or longer, and everything inside is completely safe. Uh, How safe do we know these casks are, and who's going to be inspecting to make sure? Yeah. Well, I I will say I visited the plant where they're made, and these things are very sturdy. It's not like a skinny little tin can, right? So it's (laughs) layers of steel and concrete. The final thing weighs like 300,000 pounds. They have to be tested so they can survive like a plane crashing into it or an earthquake, all that kinds of stuff. Um, The NRC says they'll be inspected at least annually, and the air vents on the bottom will be checked daily so they don't get clogged up with leaves or something. How many of these big metal and concrete casks exactly 
are there going to be and, and where will they put them? Well, right now they're outside the plant. There's 17 of them out there now, um, and there's going to be 61 total. And what they're going to be doing is building a platform at 75 feet above sea level um, and put all the casks up there much higher than they are now. So they'll be up on a hill, and that should safeguard them against sea level rise. Oh, 75 feet, that's going to safeguard them for at least a while against sea level rise, I would assume. exactly, yes. Now, that being said, we're talking about these things sitting out here for, you know, possibly hundreds of years out in the salt air. And, you know, that's never, it's a new thing, right? Nobody knows what's going to happen in 100 years or 200 years. Um, And people are really worried about it. Um, Here's Plymouth resident Sean Mullen. He chairs the Nuclear Decommissioning Citizens Advisory Panel. I don't think people quite appreciate um, the seriousness of that problem. Even in some of the greatest cultures the world's ever known, like Egypt, um, there was nobody around after about 700 years to maintain these beautiful pyramids and other things they built. To suggest that somebody will be around in 200 years and will have the uh, financial desire to continue to support these, this is a problem. Yeah. So the the company that makes these big dry casks, uh, Holtec International, they actually want to buy Pilgrim and do the whole decommissioning process. Pilgrim's current owner, Entergy, says that they could decommission the plant about 60 years, but Holtec says they can do it in eight. Hold it, 60 years down to eight? That seems really fast. Yeah. And so it seems kind of great, like if they could pull it off, that'd be um, sort of a great thing. But Holtec's never actually decommissioned a plant before, um, and that worries people. This is uh, Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy, what she said about that. We also think that Holtec is seriously underestimating what it's going to cost to get this done. And at the end of the day, if Holtec begins this project and doesn't have the money to finish it, it's going to be the state, our residents, and taxpayers that are going to be on the hook. And we want to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, so that's a real concern of people. Of What if Holtec disappears or the whoever owns Pilgrim disappears and there's nobody left to keep these casks, you know, maintained for all, for all this time? Um, the NRC says that whoever owns Pilgrim will be, quote, on the hook for the decommissioning and for taking care of these casks and that they'll get the Department of Justice involved if, if necessary for the cleanup. So how much does all this cost and, and who pays the cost for all this? Yeah, that's not entirely clear how much it will cost. Whoever owns Pilgrim will get the decommissioning trust fund, which is now about a billion dollars. Poltec says it can do the decommissioning and stay on budget and stay on time. But other nuclear plants like Connecticut Yankee and Yankee Row cost way more to clean up than anybody expected. Yeah, it always seems to cost a lot more than is expected at, at, at first glance. Mm-hmm. So with a nuclear power plant shutting down, and this is a big part of the energy mix in the region, what exactly does it mean for, for energy here across New England? Yeah. Well, Pilgrim supplied about 5% of New England's electricity. um, And in the short term, that's probably going to be made up by natural gas, which uh, there's enough energy, but it's not great for our emissions goals here in New England. Barbara Morans, senior editor of WBUR's environmental vertical, Earthwhile. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. As Barbara said, a nuclear plant that goes all the way back to the 1960s has a lot of history, a history of power and protests of promise and of people. Miriam Wasser brings us the story. My name is Paul Smith. I was born in uh, April 1946, a long time ago, and uh, kind of came of age with the nuclear age. The peaceful atom, no longer just a laboratory dream, is here today working wonders 
providing a happier, more abundant world for all mankind. Uh, began with uh, nuclear and the Boston Edison Company in 1969, uh, when Pilgrim was still under construction. At that time, nuclear was uh, well thought of. Because the atom has come to town. I was a member of Greenpeace at the time, and most of the young people starting at the plant in 1969, 1970 had uh, long hair, earrings, motorcycles, and a Greenpeace card. You were being an environmentalist at that time. We have had, over the years, always a certain presence of people that didn't agree that nuclear power was uh, all good. I'm Diane Turco. I'm director of Cape Downwinders. When I moved to the Cape in 1986, a group of folks were working on Pilgrim. The plant has been closed since April when serious management and operation problems prompted federal officials to label it one of the nation's worst-run reactors. So I got this book, uh, The Restart of the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant, that was documenting uh, Senator Kennedy's uh, hearing. And I would be sitting at the beach while my children were playing in the water reading this book. And uh, it was very alarming. Our concern is not limited to people residing within the 10-mile emergency planning zone, but for residents of Cape Cod and the South Shore as a whole. And I watched my children play in the beach, and I thought of that, and I said, this is not acceptable. Boston Edison argues it's ready to reopen. The NRC wants to see, well, it's great, Pilgrim, you're improving. We want to see you sustain that. That's what we've got to prove. I'm Mary Lampert, director of Pilgrim Watch in Duxbury, Massachusetts. First time I became aware of Pilgrim was I read in the local paper, meeting about Pilgrim, got to keep it closed. So there was a big demonstration. I went down with my dear friend Sarah Thatcher, and there was a big yellow line. The police said, don't cross that line, and Sarah crossed the line. I wasn't planning to, um, but I couldn't let her go by herself. So I stepped over that line, and stepping over that line changed my life. So you cross the line, the police, you know, say thank you, and they escort you into a bus. And then we went to jail, and it was hysterically funny. <laughs> Name, age, how much do you weigh? You think I'm going to tell you how much I weigh? Don't be ridiculous. And then the fun sort of ended. Because once it went back online, the general public really became totally disinterested. We were proud to start up. We thought it was recognition that we understood how to be a good plant operator. The next challenge was relicensing. Our 40-year license was to end in 2012. For a plant like Pilgrim to stay online, it needs permission from the federal government, specifically the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Massachusetts. So there was a process whereby they applied and the public would have the opportunity to intervene. Being young and foolish, only in my 60s at the time, <laughs> I thought, this isn't going to be a problem. And so the way it went... I would get, let's say, a reply from one of the lawyers. And literally, I would cry. I mean, can you imagine? I would cry. Just, ah, I can't do it. 
And that's that went on for six years. Tonight, nuclear officials in Japan warning of a possible nuclear reactor meltdown. An explosion at the troubled Fukushima 1 nuclear power plant. The estimated 170,000 people have been evacuated to avoid exposure to radiation from damaged nuclear reactors. When I heard of the disaster happening at Fukushima, my heart stopped because what we knew could happen was happening. The opposition to the nuclear power plant in Plymouth had become as sleepy as a town on the Cape in winter. But the damage at the Fukushima plant has awakened fears among many And I think that hit home with so many people. So we had lots of people coming to our meetings and, and supporting rallies and demonstrations, writing letters. Anybody who crosses this line, you will be turned over to the police for trespassing. We the people! We the people! Finally, due to pressure from Congress, they called the game. They said, Pilgrim's license is extended. Members of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission have voted three to one in favor of a new 20-year license for the only nuclear plant operating in Massachusetts. NRC spokesman Neil Sheehan says the decision comes after the longest review on record. Based on all the reviews that have taken place, we do believe that the plant would be safe for an additional 20 years of operation. The Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Mass., is under scrutiny after the Nuclear Regulatory Commission announced it was downgrading the reactor's safety rating. They were not spending the money that they should spend. They were not doing the maintenance that they were supposed to do. Well, the handwriting was on the wall last month when the NRC downgraded Pilgrim. I was driving home from my daughter's house, and I got a call from my friend Eileen Williamson. She said, oh, did you hear the news? Pilgrim's closing. And I was like, oh! Yes! I was so excited. I thought I was going to pop out of the car. Story we're working new at noon today. The only nuclear power plant in Massachusetts will be shutting down by 2019. The owners uh, they of gathered us together in small groups and, and said the, the company has, has run the numbers and that we're going to have to cease operation of the plant. It was... Um, you know, a disappointment. Clear that Pilgrim is simply no longer financially viable. Our decision to close Pilgrim was based on a combination of reduced revenues, poor market structure. In my house, I can see the reactor. And one marvels, how could that small little building across the bay really occupy waking hours of over 30 years of my life? Daniel Dove of Plymouth handles the shipment of nuclear waste from Pilgrim. I've been at the station approximately five years, and I believe in nuclear power. I find it unfortunate that we're going to close this plant down before its end of its usefulness. Pilgrim, from 1972 to today, I think its legacy would be that it fulfilled a a public need. Uh, The plant's legacy would be... What a foolish adventure this was. You look back on a whole life where you can feel good about. Yeah. Fukushima happened. It could just as well have been here. We lucked out. We lucked out.
Coming up, we'll look at the history of the Mohican tribe on the Mohawk Trail. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. One of the most scenic and in places scary summer drives you can take in New England is the historic Mohawk Trail, which stretches 70 miles from Montague, Massachusetts to Williamstown right along Route 2. Long before it was a tourist highway, it was a native trade route, and while named for the Mohawks, there was another tribe that lived on that land, the Mohican Nation, Stockbridge Muncie Band. Only about 1,500 members of that band survive today, half of whom live in Wisconsin. Elodie Reed has been reporting for the Berkshire Eagle on efforts to recognize the Mohicans' role in the history of the Mohawk Trail. She started by telling us how the trail got its name. When the road opened up in 1914, it was the first time cars could pass over it. And the people in the region, historians had started associating it with the Mohawk tribe, which people understood used the trail for trade and for you know various wartime activities. But the real sort of origin of the Mohawk Trail as a tourism device started in right in 1914. Uh, North Adams, which is one of the towns the Mohawk Trail passes through, they put on a community pageant to promote the road as a place open to tourism. And that pageant, you know, started way back, you know, when the glacial waters were receding from the area. Um, and it went right up through the day the road was open. And it depicted the trail as this historic place where indigenous people passed through for trade and for war. But they kind of disappeared from the scene when colonists arrive, and there was no real depiction of violence between these two groups of people. But the Mohawk Trail name stuck because it was the sort of romantic idea of westward expansion, you know, associated with Native Americans, um, the idea of this sort of rugged place that people pass through, had this kind of grand legacy. And as you say, an awful lot of the history that the locals have carried on about it isn't actually the the history that happened. I, I'm wondering if you can talk about what you uncovered as you as you looked through the the history of Native peoples on this land and, and what was different from the descendants of white settlers were were talking about it decades later. I think what's not accurate is there's just a whole group of people missing from those histories. Um, the Mohawk Trail emphasizes the Mohawk tribe, which did use the trail, but the territory actually belonged to the Mohican tribe. They're based along the Hudson River Valley, stretching west into Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Vermont, um, and then east into New York. And this was their hunting grounds. There's no evidence as far as the UMass archaeological team is concerned of permanent settlements in the Berkshires region of the Mohawk Trail. But I've talked to historians uh, and as well as read the sort of history that the tribe puts out about itself. And that is very clearly delineated as their territory. And no, nowhere along the Mohawk Trail is that indicated. What has the response been of the community at large to, to some of these pushes for 
rethinking and reshaping the history of of this region? Are are people concerned that the the name the Mohawk Trail might go away? Are they concerned that some of the history is going to be uh, going to be changed in the next couple of years? I don't think so. That's not an opinion I encountered. I think there's more this unfamiliarity or hesitance to reach out. I I know I experienced that reporting this out, not because I didn't want to, but I just didn't know who to contact and, and, you know, who was the official sort of go-to person. Um, I found Bonnie Hartley, the uh, tribal historic preservation officer, and she was a great resource. She's located in Troy, New York, so she was close by. Um, But I think there's more just this lack of knowledge about how to go about this. But there is sort of the beginnings of people interested in reaching out to the Mohican tribe now that they're aware that this is, in fact, their homelands. Williams has just hired a couple Indigenous Studies professors. One started this year, Eli Nelson, and he'll be joined next year by Christine DeLuca. In general, there's just this growing momentum to deepen people's understanding of of Indigenous people and their place in our history and also their relevance today. It is interesting, though, that in this part of the country where there's there's so much uh, history of Native people uh, mingling with settlers, but also having a history that goes many, many hundreds of years b- before that, and that so many of our place names come from from Native names, that there's not more, as you say, visibility. I, I, I guess I'm surprised by that. Are you surprised that, that that's the case today in 2019? I don't know that I'm surprised. I think there's... You know, our histories are written by the people in power, <laughs> um, and our our histories have been written by um, white colonialists. But I, I do think as America sort of wrangles in this moment in time with, you know, its diversity and who it wants to be, I, I think it makes a lot of sense that people are reexamining history and what the story it tells. Um, and I think a lot of folks want to look at a how it could be more inclusive. That's certainly the sense I got. There there wasn't a lot of resistance to the idea of making Indigenous people more visible. It's more just a matter of the logistics about how to go about doing it because it's just not something people are familiar with. And do you think that that people of the the white community, the descendants of the the settlers, uh, people who are not Indigenous, do you think that they're coming to terms with the role that they played in, in decimating many of these tribes, taking their homelands? I think so. Um, one subject I spoke with, Rick Wilcox, he's the um, retired police chief in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And he was just a really great example of someone who has sort of taken stock of his past. He's descendant from um, some of the first white settlers in the area. And he has been actively working uh, with the Mohican tribe to sort of dig into their history in the area. He's gone through all these historical land deeds um, involving tribe members and transcribed them so they're legible so that um, the Mohican tribe can use them for what they want, including a walking tour in the town of Stockbridge. And he's someone who, you know, has looked at his past and said, I I don't necessarily feel responsible for what my ancestors did, but I do feel responsible for the actions I take today. And the actions he wants to take anyways to to build up a relationship with the tribe and continue to you know move forward in a positive direction could could you imagine a, a time at which when we drive along the the Mohawk trail to have a a really a nice summer vacation that there may be different signage there may be something that looks a little different and connects 
people who are just out on a holiday a bit more with the, the actual history of the place? So I think that's actually happening right now. The Berkshire Natural Resources Council, um, which is a group that maintains a lot of trails in the in the county and um, actually has a trail uh, through the Mohawk Trail region um, that includes the Mohican Mohawk Trail, which is this 100-mile trail project um, that people in the region have been continually expanding to try and follow the original footpath of indigenous people. There's actually going to be new signage going up there that's been created in conjunction with the Mohican tribe, and that's just happening right now. And in addition, um, working with one of the founders of the Mohican Mohawk Trail, Lauren Stevens, he's a former Williams College English professor, just the process of talking to him for this story kind of, I think, established the idea that the Mohican tribe is still very much alive and interested in being involved. And I, from what he has told me, I think his group is going to be working more actively to be in contact with them. So I think those are the beginning steps of having indigenous representation along the Mohawk Trail that may be more sort of accurate to, to what happened in the past and what's happening today. Elodie Reed is the reporter and author of a recent series for the Berkshire Eagle, Mohicans in the Mohawk Trail. You can find links to the series at nextnewengland.org. Elodie, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for the series. Thank you for having me. We called up Joanne Shedler, a respected elder and former councilwoman for the Stockbridge-Munsee Mohican Nation. She told us how she feels about the Mohicans finally being represented on the Mohawk Trail. I, I think it feels great, and I'm very happy to be a part of it because many things have been lost for us, and I I just um, am very proud that we are still living and here, you know, together, because our ancestors have sacrificed so much to do that. You can subscribe to our program wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England, and if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us. It really helps. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia, and the executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Chris Albertine and Glenn Alexander. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, and Karen Connolly. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public Radio.